Happy New Year, everyone, from all of us at Slightly Foxed in London. A new year, and yes, your favourite literary podcast has a new host and a new producer. My name is Rosie Goldsmith, ex-BBC, book lover, rest assured, and presenter. And together with producer Philippa Goodrich, also ex-BBC, we'll do our very best to uphold the excellence of the Slightly Foxed podcast, bequeathed to us by Philippa Lamb and Lynn Jones. To begin with, I'd like to bring in resident foxes, editors Gail Perkis and Hazelwood. They're here to keep me company and to apologise to them, first and foremost, that I don't have a dog. Um, <laughs> this is a bit shocking, Rosie. This is a Look, bit it shocking. wasn't in the job description, so I do apologise. But there will be dogs. I'm sure everybody will be happy to hear dogs barking at some point. Everybody else seems to have one except me. And we will be featuring some dogs later in this episode, so stay tuned, everyone. Now, Gail and Hazel, it is a very big year for you, 2024. Give us a, a, a soup song, a little taster of what's on the well, menu. Well, it's, it's, it's a landmark anniversary for us because we've been going for 20 years now and we've just published the 80th issue of the magazine. So in February, we're going to have a big party to celebrate. We're also going to have an online auction to raise money for Book Trust, which is the UK's largest children's book charity. So there'll be lots of lovely prizes to bid for. Very good. And and then we're going to keep publishing good things. So the, yeah. the spring issue is at the printers, full of a wide variety of topics. Derek Walcott, the St Lucian poet, a lovely memoir called My Salinger Year about a girl who goes to New York and works for a literary agency, which is enchanting. A novel by Carson McCullers. Uh, crime fiction, Death of a Bookseller. Which is Jaws very, are dropping yeah, around the kitchen table. As well. <laughs> this is very exciting. A piece on comics. Yes, um, yes. A Rob wonderful Shaw novel on a, on a storm that sweeps across America, which was published in 1940. And a friendship, a bookish friendship, Graham Swift and Vesna Goldsworthy. My 2024 so. is sorted. Hazel, is this um, This is all well, part of your yes, work as well? We've been working on this, yes. You've yes. been working very hard on this, I we think. Have. We're also doing another Adrian Bell, aren't we? We're doing the yes. Yes, summer. We've been doing um, sort of seasonal selections. A lot of people will know about Adrian Bell because we've published his trilogy. These are beautiful little, you know, just very condensed little moments. And... So we've selected them according to season, and we've done two already, and we're now doing a third. So there'll be a sort of whole year's worth. Wonderful. So that's one of the good things that's, that's going on. I also should mention we've got three new members of staff. They're so being very quiet in the they're background. They're being very quiet, but um, I would like publicly to welcome Isabel and Rebecca and Izzy, who have just joined us. And just in case listeners are wondering, I have only just discovered when we talk about a kitchen table that this really is a kitchen table (laughs) and we are sitting around a kitchen table in a publishing office. I don't think there's anything else like it. And there's a coffee, tea, everything, so it's very comfortable. It does feel like being at home. Quite cramped, actually, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) But we are sitting around the kitchen table and with us is Valerie Grove, the esteemed journalist, columnist, author and 
biographer. Welcome to you, Valerie. It's great to have you here. And pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Now, you've written biographies of Laurie Lee, John Mortimer and Dodie Smith, today's topic. She was the first. She was the first. And I'm really delighted to launch my Foxed residency with you talking about Dodie Smith. And this is a very timely and very topical reason we're dedicating this episode to her. The play. Tell us what's happening in February. This is the most extraordinary development, totally unexpected by me, and I only heard very recently about it. But I'm so looking forward to it. They are reviving Dear Octopus. And when I started writing about Dodie, people would say, who was she? And if I reminded older people that uh, she wrote Dear Octopus, that was her play in 1938, which was her most successful. And everybody knew a bit about the 101 Dalmatians, and most women knew about I Captured the Castle. But Dear Octopus was the, the play of her lifetime. It ran for two years, starred John Gielgud, and it was a great success that went to America. But could I, at the time, in 1994, when Dodie had just died, get anybody to revive it? No. Too old-fashioned, Richard Eyre, uh, uh, David Hare, people told me, no, you'll never get Dear Octopus to come back. And I thought, but if modern actress, actors and actresses could take part in it, it would be different. And it would be still f- quite a funny, if dated, drawing room comedy. And it's coming back. <laughs> with, I know, I'm thrilled about it. Well, I Amazing. mean, the, the title itself is intriguing. And I yes. didn't even know that Dodie Smith had written plays. So I'm really excited. It'll be the first time I see a play of hers at the National Theatre. Yes. Um, and the title I have just read refers to a toast in the play at the mm. Golden Wedding Anniversary reunion. And to the family, this is the toast, that dear octopus from whose tentacles we never quite escape nor in our inmost hearts ever quite wish to. So that's what the octopus is, the family. Everybody in every audience will respond to this, even if they don't really like their families very much. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is her sixth play, though. Which it was, yes. I mean, I can't even believe that she'd written six plays. And I really, I didn't know, I mean, I feel terrible that I didn't know a single well, one of them. it wasn't a very well-known story. Um, I mean, she lived to be 94, and uh, people's memories are not uh, very long. She started wanting to be an actress, but she hadn't much hope. Extraordinary character she was, a very determined little person. Littleness was Part, part of her I think being character. little, it's not even pejorative, because she really was <laughs> she very was little. Very, very she, was, small. she was under five Just foot. Just under five foot. And with age, as she aged, she got even smaller, of course, as most of us do. And she had the most wonderful childhood. Let's go back and let's talk mm. about her childhood. Yes. Because you've written a biography mm. of Dodie Smith, Dear Dodie. Dear Dodie, yes. Which I've enjoyed reading very much indeed, along with rereading I Capture the Castle, yeah. 101 Dalmatians, all this. I mean, it's what a wonderful discovery. <laughs> she, she was so much the focus of her entire family, a large family, because although she was an only child and her father died when she was two, and her mother took her to this rather grand, uh, lately built Victorian house. This was 1896, 1898, in Manchester, in Old Trafford. And because there were three 
bachelor uncles at home and two not yet married aunts and two maids, one of whom could do the splits and the other one couldn't tell her left from her right unless she hopped. <laughs> and the grandfather and the grandimage, as she was known, she was a writer herself. This ten adults, ten adoring adults and dogs and rabbits and hens that they kept. I mean, it was a wonderful household and the three bachelor uncles were stalwarts of the great and lively Mancunian theatre world at the time. There were 58 amateur dramatic societies and they put on plays all the time and Dodie herself was on the stage by the age of 12 and Dorothy she was originally. Her name was Dorothy Gladys. Dorothy Gladys. And I can imagine why she became Dodie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dodie was her baby name. I mean, and in fact, it did her no harm because she was trying to be an actress and she was part of a little gang of flappers in her late teens and 20s after she'd been at RADA. They were called Flapper, Pixie, Boo, and they had Bunty. I mean, they had, they had all these childish names that was very popular in the 20s. So Dodie fitted in very well with them. Now, she was a terrible actress. Terrible. (laughs) She was terrible at many things, but not writing, obviously. And, I I mean, some of the quotes from your biography as well and from, you know, her journals too. And she said, says, I lost my looks at the age of seven. Yes, I lost it gone. (laughs) And then she says eight was was the best year to be. I think she's right, actually. So this is about childhood being formative for her all the way through her writing her life she was the perpetual child yes i mean the little dodie smith of kingston house she regarded herself as and she's still in old age still thought of herself as little dodie smith of kingston house the focus of all the love and affection and admiration of the family because they loved her to perform sing dance recite poetry and walking along the promenade because this family adored the seaside and they loved outings and fairgrounds and circuses as well as theatre. Walking along with her three uncles with her white doeskin shoes and her pretty little outfits, she thought was the best feeling in in the world and the best age to be when she was eight. And they quite made up for having no father. She adored her own childhood and she found it fascinating and that's why the, the slightly foxed edition of her great slew of autobiographies that she wrote much, much later in life. So Look Back it, with it, Love. Look Back with Love one. is the best. Her childhood. It is a really, it's a classic of childhood. It brings it all so vividly to life and is so funny. Along with the autobiography, she wrote mm. journals all the mm. way through her life from yes. the age of eight. Yes. That magical year to the age of 80. 90. 90. Um, I think she was still writing at 90, yes. And then the nine novels, the Mm. 11 plays, was it? Mm. And sort of debatable, I think. And then the (laughs) five volumes of her autobiography. Yes. You wonder how she did it. I mean, she was annotating, chronicling everything she did. She simply found herself the most interesting person in the world, which is one of the (laughs) pleasures of writing a biography of a writer is that they do find themselves interesting and they do find themselves most alive when they're writing. This does bring me to the question of Mm. your biography, dear Dodie, and 
why you wrote it, how you wrote it, how you dealt with the suitcases and the boxes of all yeah. the literary material, yeah. the archive yes. that you yes. had. Well, it's, it's, it was simply marvellous because there was so much and because she kept every letter she ever wrote and the carbons of her, her letters out to the people who were writing to her. She wrote letters every day. She wrote her diary always and a resume every year of her life so far, which always included both the fabulous childhood in Manchester and then when she moved with her mother, who remarried, Mm -hmm. to London and went to RADA and found this gang of girls, actresses, musicians, dancers. She had an absolute conviction. She could always talk herself into a job and act herself out of it. She (laughs) knew she wasn't very good, and that's why she gave up. (laughs) Discovering all this about Dodie was an absolute joy in, like now, the month of January, and it was very snowy in Boston. Boston University had a chap who was crazy about show business called Dr. Howard Gottlieb, and he used to collect the papers of all the film stars that he loved and the writers that he admired, including English writers. And he fell in love with I Capture the Castle and uh, fell in love with Dodie and the idea of Dodie, and he bought her papers. So Julian Barnes, the literary executor, sent them off to Boston, and that's where I had to go. And I had the most blissful time, sealed into this goldfish bowl of a library, reading through and copying out, transcribing onto my newly newly discovered laptop. Uh, There was millions of words, and I came home with millions of words to choose from, and lots of people to see. And her life proved to be so amazing because it wasn't just the, the lovely childhood and the, her going to RADA and then the Three Arts Club in Marlebone Road where she lived with these other flapper-like girls. But she'd had this astonishing affair. She had flung herself at Sir Ambrose Heel, who ran Heel's, the great furniture store in Tottenham Court Road. And she did that absolutely deliberately. Her friend Pixie, another of these little flappers, Pixie said, if a girl isn't married by the age of 25, then she has the right to fling herself at a married man. As Dodie knew very well, married men were all perfectly willing to be flung at. She was running their art gallery, and she wrote him a valentine from the little gal of the little gallery. Uh, he, fell he, it, he fell for it, though. He fell for it. He certainly uh, did. And they um, stayed friends for many years, For, yeah, didn't for life, they? For yes. Life. And then, of course, she death. met Alec Beasley. Mm, at Heels. At Heels. Mm. So he became her manager. Mm. And then her husband. Yes. And then they had to leave England in 1939 because Alec was a conscientious yes, objector. very serious one, yes. She obviously didn't want to leave England. By the time of 1938 and Dear Octopus her sixth play. Each play was a success. She also had all the accoutrements she ever wanted to make her a happy woman. She had a floor-length mink coat. She had a beautiful cottage in the country called the Barretts in Essex, Finching Field. She had a beautiful flat in town, and they had a Rolls-Royce, a silver, grey Rolls-Royce, which, as John Gielgud told me, was a ridiculous car to drive in the lanes of Essex and she also 
said her famous line about all I need now is a Dalmatian because her flat was decorated in what was very fashionable in 1934, black curtains and white furniture and a fleck black and white carpets. And all she needed was a Dalmatian yes, dog to match joked, the furniture. So yes. there she is. They had to go to the United States. Alex was the conscientious yeah. director. And then she didn't write for a very long time. She couldn't write. Mm. And she'd had this great success in England mm. and then wrote she a few She didn't know how she was plays. going to get back to it. But the, the essential thing is she had brought her dog with her. So d- Dalmatian she, number one. She didn't really want it. It was a joke she was making about wanting a Dalmatian. On her 38th birthday, a hat box was presented on her counterpane in her bed from Alec, her lover, her, and her nice young man who was devoted to her and had the flat next door. She said, what woman wants a hat that she hasn't chosen for herself? But out of the hat box lurched this large Dalmatian puppy called Pongo, and that was the beginning of an obsession. Now, Gail and Hazel are also very excited about hearing the word Pongo, because we all know who Pongo was. He's he's the hero in 101 Dalmatians, yes, Yes. absolutely. So they're in the United States. She tries writing. She misses England very much. She doesn't have any of the success that she had in England. How did she cope? Because at the very end, she was writing the famous mm. novel, I mm-hmm. Capture the Castle. So was she sure. writing that all the time? Or? It was a, an expression of how nostalgic she was for uh, England, everything about England, everything. One day in 1934, near their cottage in Essex, they'd been driving past a, an old castle, Wingfield, uh, which had a house grafted onto it and a moat around it. and. Uh, it made her think about who might be living there. So she started to invent, this is in 1940, she started to invent the family which eventually peopled I Capture the Castle and was so uniquely fascinating and interesting and lively and funny that it made that novel, her first novel, into a, a, a classic. In the meantime, she was writing for Hollywood. She was invited to improve the scripts for Hitchcock's Rebecca and you know, for really great plays she was asked to improve the dialogue and she, she made a lot of money doing that and so they went to Hollywood from New York and, and it was in Hollywood sitting at the desk at An- Anatole Litvak's house they'd hired the house and uh, she was looking out on the Pacific Ocean in the bright blue Californian light and she was imagining her beloved Suffolk and Essex, East Anglia, and the, the, the family that she was going to write about. She really started it in 1945, just before Hitler died, and she was feeling that she might go back home at any time. But they were frightened of going back home and what all the theatre people would say about their having left England. It was regarded as treachery by some. I mean, she wrote this over several years, Mm -hmm. I Capture the Castle, and she revised it and she wrote notes about what she was writing and she drew pictures of the characters and of the house and it was meticulous. Every single word you feel has been so thought out and weighed up and measured. and And not only that, she read it all aloud 
she and Alec together. Alec questioned everything. He even questioned the weight of the stones in the castle. I mean, the, the characters each were gone into. Would they ring true? Would this be convincing? She read all the dialogue out, and I wish more novelists would do that. <laughs> this is what lets one down so often. She applied a playwright's precision to this novel. It came out in, was it 1948? And it was in the Sunday Times, it was uh, chosen by several people to be their book of the year, including her hero, Vaughan Williams, whose music she adored. And so she was absolutely thrilled. It was an instant success, and you yes. can see why. I mean, we've got some time to talk about I Capture the Castle in more detail, and I just want to read out the opening paragraph, which I think everybody knows, but <laughs> it's so beautiful. Yes. She starts... I write this sitting in the kitchen sink. <laughs> that is, my feet are in it. The rest of me is on the draining board, which I have padded with our dog's blanket and the tea cosy. I can't say that I'm really comfortable, and there's a depressing smell of carbolic soap, but this is the only part of the kitchen where there's any daylight left. And I have found that sitting in a place where you've never sat before can be inspiring. I wrote my very best poem while sitting on the hen house. <laughs> Though even that isn't a very good poem. I have decided my poetry is so bad that I mustn't write any more of it. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, that is. Is. She's immediately Gail likeable. Hazel, Valerie, we all love that, don't we? We love Cassandra. Yes. She's just a it's wonderful... It's in the voice of Cassandra. She's, I'm not 17 years old, and I can't read it like mm. a 17-year-old, mm. um, but she was mm. 17, yeah. Cassandra, the protagonist, and yes. she's writing about her family. Uh, her sister Rose, who's 21 and very beautiful, mm. and then there's her father, Mortmain. He's a writer with one successful, experimental, James Joycean-type novel behind him. Um, yes. He can't write anymore. He's got writer's block. And then his second wife, Topaz, and their, his son, Thomas, who's at school, Stephen, the farmhand, who works in the house as well, and their lodger. And then these two American, British-American boys, Neil and Simon Cotton, come into the story. So you've, you've almost got a dramatis personae, as in a play, of all these characters. They're yes. all wonderfully described. Mm. And then Cassandra is leading us through. She's writing about them, yes, judging the, them. She immediately, apart from being so likeable, so terribly amiable and sweet-natured, and says things like, you know, I, I'm suddenly feeling much happier. Perhaps it's the thought of boiled eggs for tea. I mean, they're living in absolute poverty. And, and as she says, Rose is a pinkish person, perfectly beautiful, golden hair. But she is all very bitter with life because they never meet any men, no boys. Rose apparently says, I'm sick of it. If things don't improve, I shall go on the streets if necessary. And the fact that it's two sisters and uh, looking for husbands, hoping for love and romance, made everybody think it was a sort of pride and prejudice. But it's actually even more fascinating than the, the scenario for Pride and Prejudice. And many women writers have told me that this was the novel that inspired them to write. Antonia Fraser, and J.K. Rowling, and Joanna Trollope all mentioned it 
What is it about the novel, though? What is it about? Is oh, it it's just it, it's something intangible. Even the minor characters, Miss Marcy, the librarian, uh, the vicar is very funny. Stephen, the factotum who adores Cassandra. I won't give it away. What what becomes? No, you of mustn't, him. because we do want everybody to read this again. As I mean, okay. I've read it twice now yes. too. But yes. there's, there's another but character that you've not mentioned, and that's the castle itself. Yes. Which you can, from her description, you're there, you can picture it, you can walk through it, and it's almost the first character you get to know, because although each member of the household is introduced, she quite early on, she, she walks you through the castle, and mm. so you're there with her through, through the house that's been grafted onto this castle, mm. up the spiral staircases, onto the battlements, there's the moat. I mean, you know, you can picture it. And the manor house as well. Yes, it's so romantic. House. And it's, you know, it's, wouldn't we all love to live in a castle? Maybe that's part of the, the joy of it, too. And there's the vicar also is a wonderful character and a very important character. Yes. And he describes Cassandra as Jane Eyre with a touch of Becky Sharp, a thoroughly dangerous girl. A thoroughly dangerous girl. girl. Isn't that good? It's wonderful. I'd love to yes. have been that. But Cassandra yes. is also Dodie, though. I mean, Dodie wrote oh, yes. herself into I, Cassandra. That's exactly what she said. I wrote myself into the character. And obviously had an equally good sense of humour because the humour is... Yeah, yes. I mean, we've all yes. been laughing, Gail and yes. Hazel. I mean, they've been trying to suppress their laughter <laughs> around the table as we talk. But it is incredibly yes. funny. She's very sharp. She is sharp, isn't she's she? Sharp. Which makes her so likeable yes. in a way. There's, yes, there's a lovely bit where Rose is praying desperately that Simon is going to propose and she's sort of kneeling by her bed and praying and praying and praying and eventually Cassandra says, that's enough, Rose. It's all right just to mention it once, but going on is just nagging. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and she also said that Rose aroused in her, the younger sister, loving feelings and sympathetic feelings, apart from sometimes when I want to kick her fairly hard. And one well, can sympathise with that too, because Rose is humorless by comparison. And Cassandra is our favourite. And Cassandra is writing about writing as mm -hmm. well. She wants to be a writer, which is why she's writing this book. Mm -hmm. She wants to be able to describe all the characters, all the dialogues, all the conversations they have. So she, like Dodie, is writing yes. everything down yes. and noticing everything, which I think inspires a lot of writers today as well. She's really quite wonderful. Hazel and Gale, I don't know what you think. What did you yes. find in your reading of I Capture the Castle, Hazel? Yes, it took me a while to sort of get into the kind of feel of it. But once I was in, I was sort of carried away, and I was carried away by the, the sheer sort of strength of her nostalgia for England, being in America. She longed and longed and longed, didn't she? And her sort of the way she sets the scene. Do you think that's mm. part of the success, this, you know, we're coming out of the Second World War at this stage, the nostalgia for, for yes. England, for old times? Yes, I think so. And, you know, it's, it's a sort of thread that carries on through English writing, isn't it, really? And I, I was very taken with that. And I was also just taken with Cassandra herself, her marvellous sort of turn of phrase. There's one bit... She says something like, the country is very flat round here and Rose doesn't really like flat countryside, but I like it because it gives the sky such a good chance. <laughs> you know, I mean, who would have Love thought that. of that somehow, <laughs> you know? It's, so it's, I think just yeah. the sheer sort of originality of it, I loved. It but, is lovely. Um, but also at the end, Gail. she, you know, so there are these 
two boys who've, who've moved to the manor house nearby and these two girls who are looking for husbands and, and wealth. And they sort of flip-flop between, you know, one prefers one brother and then they discover that, that you know, that's not the case. And I think it's because he has a beard. Maybe. The beard's I not can popular. That. I can understand <laughs> that. But, but at the very end, you're left with the possibility that Cassandra has found the love of her life but she's going to go on writing and she hasn't said to this man, she hasn't told him how she feels. So you're left with the, with the possibility of hope, but it's not all wrapped up and tidily parceled. You know, you, you, so so yes. your imagination can go on from there. That, I think it is you know, a gift to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. Valerie, finally on I Capture the Castle, you've called it Dodie Smith's masterpiece. I think it is. Yes. Tell us why. Because all this association with Pride and Prejudice and the situation of two girls and the sudden arrival of two young men, you think you know which way it'll go, but there's nothing predictable about it. Nothing. And she she did try different endings, but let's leave it quite open. I know that she'd made a great friend of Christopher Isherwood while in Hollywood, and because he was living in California too, and he said, it's a book you can live inside, like Dickens, which I think is a marvellous thing to say. She'd send the copy of the book to friends and say, it's just a little piece for Peg's paper, but written with a care that would not have disgraced Flaubert, which is a very good thing to say, but the care is apparent. She always said that easy reading and easy speaking on stage is dashed hard writing. Mm. And uh, my goodness, the Flaubertian uh, com- you know, comparison is really quite apposite. Well, in, in her, the first volume of her Gales. autobiography, I mean, she says, you know, mm. something to the effect that you know, I was an odd child, but I mm. do do my best to write as, you know, as well as I possibly can. I'm yes. paraphrasing, but she, does. she really, she really did mm. work at her craft, didn't mm. she? Hazel. I was amazed reading Look Back with Love again. Which is the first of her autobiography. autobiography, The only one that was really successful, wasn't it? I was amazed at the amount of storytelling that went on. I mean, there were stories in the morning from her mother, then from her grandmother. Um, Every every moment of the day there seemed to be, you know, storytelling. and, And she was such an imaginative child. You know, lying in bed at night, she used to sort of... She had an extraordinary game, didn't she? It was called Dr. Nansen or something, and one of her feet would be freezing, and the other foot would be on a sort of hot brick that mm. the, she was given to keep them warm. And then I think the, the foot that was on the hot brick would go out and rescue the foot that was freezing and take it back. But she used to frighten herself with these stories at night until her mother told her she mustn't. And she used to lie rigid in bed, worrying about not being able to tell herself a story, but eventually they gave in and said, oh, it's all right, you can do it. You know, but I, I thought all that was just so extraordinary. But, you know, she must have got that. I mean, I was just amazed at how, you know, the sort of virtuosity of her family, you know, yes, storytelling all the time. They were, yes, I mean, everything yes. was fed, and fed into yes. with the uncles. The uncle who used to suddenly sort of go mad. The I'm going yes. mad act. I'm yes. going mad. Yes. And, and she Whenever terrified. they got to the theatre, <laughs> yes. the one, one uncle would, would uh, pretend to have lost the tickets, not yes. have them. <laughs> yes. How can you ever get me? Or they would 
some uh, one once in particular, they said, oh, "We've just heard the theatre has burnt down," <laughs> yes, yes, yes. and there was also this preamble of disappointment and sadness. Yes. Um, she, no, grew she, up, ima- she grew up being theatrical. Yes, and her, yes. absolutely. Her, her imagination, anything could get her imagination going. She had a little notebook, her first notebook ever, which is there in Boston among all her papers, which, as I sit by my window, is the title of it, and she used to. Imagine the lives of everybody passing by. And she said anything got her imagination going. The days of the week had colours for her, which is a, apparently a condition, isn't it? A, a mental condition some people do have. Days of the week, months of the year, uh, uh, numbers all have different colours. And <laughs> so there, there she was, the incipient writer always inside her, little mm. Dodie Smith. Well, I- as mm. you can tell, I Capture mm. the Castle has captured all of our hearts and I yeah. cannot recommend it highly enough. I mean, it is the most beautiful book to read, to reread for mm. writers, for young people, for older people. It's, it's really absolutely marvellous. And of course, it was made into a film, which I also loved. The 2003 film with Ramallah Garai and Bill Nighy and Rose Byrne and Tara Fitzgerald. Yes. And then Dodie did quite well with films because then, of course, we had... 101 Dalmatians and this is probably the moment everybody's been waiting for because we're going to talk about dogs (laughs) (laughs) and lots of dogs because there were 101 in this film so we have the Disney films and we have the book and Dodie Smith's passion for Dalmatians Mm. and at one point she owned nine Dalmatians and she kept Dalmatians all her life as you've told us earlier how did Dodie fall in love with Dalmatians how did she make them into her literary life how did she combine the two she always adored all animals all animals were to be protected and loved and in the end she fed the rats and mice in her in her cottage to the horror it was of the rather neighbors. a strange love of animals yes i've got to say a bit neurotic a bit neurotic mm-hmm. yes wouldn't sh- shut shut a window without seeing whether there might have been a fly in the uh, jam of the window and when she wrote in her diary she wrote, uh, in 1939, she said, I, I have burned my boats, I brought my dog Pongo out of England, which meant quarantine, which meant they had to stay for a certain amount of time. And they acquired more Dalmatians in California, and they also mated two of the, their Dalmatians, Buzz and Folly, and they had in the end 17 Dalmatians in their house, and everybody thought they were crazy. <laughs> Gail, you've you've read this. You've read the the Dodie's book, 101 Dalmatians. When my daughter was about three, she somehow acquired the Disney version of 101 Dalmatians. Is this the animated Disney animated? Because there was the second film, of course. This is not the second film. This is the first film. So it's Disney cartoon images, very simplified text, and she was completely obsessed by it. And we read it every night again and again and again mm. till she knew it off by heart and the punchline for her at the very end was where Mr Deardy says and we're not selling a single one you know and I was sick of this wretched story by the time you know what it's like when you read to a, a child over and over again the same thing but I reread the original version the proper mm. version quite recently and it's absolutely enchanting and the Disney film was a travesty, really, because the period detail in it, 
that you know the idea of living in an, a lovely little house in Regent's Park, yeah. the idea that Mr. Dearley has done something marvellous with the national debt, so he's been let off income tax for life. I mean, what an enchanting idea! Every family's dream. <laughs> and and then of course he marries Mrs. Dearley, and one of them has got Nanny Cook, and the other has Nanny Butler, and those are their names, and and one of them ends up being the cook, and the other ends up being the butler, and they go to to live in in this little house with Pongo, when Pongo marries Mrs, and then the puppies come. I mean, it's just, the scene setting is enchanting. Never mind, you know, the villainess who turns up. Cruella de Vil. Who is the most (coughs) splendid character. She's a very good creation, yes, yes. I actually don't think that the original book of 101 Donations has anything like the uh, fun of Dodie's other writing. She wrote it in a fury. She wrote, she wrote that book because Enid Blyton was having such a success. It was to annoy Enid Blyton. It was. <laughs> not just not... <laughs> it, was, it was to show that she could write a children's book. Yes. Why, why shouldn't she? And she had to buy a, a, a book for a child in the neighbourhood. And she, she didn't like children. She didn't know any children. She never had anything to do with children, never wanted a child herself. So she wrote this book... I think, from an adult's viewpoint, she wrote it in three or four weeks, and it was indeed, it was an instant success. Although some, uh, Alan Melville, who reviewed it on the radio, said he was going to read out the first paragraph, which is about Mr. and Mrs. Dearly, and their, who are owned by their dog, Pongo. Of course, they're, they're, they're not the owners, they're, they're the, the pets. pets. Yes. <laughs> yes. The role reversal. Yeah, the role well. reversal. Alan Melville said, <laughs> I'll, I'll wait while 3% of you go and throw up, and I'll carry on talking for the rest of the other 97%. Well, Dodie was furious about this, this critical view that people, it would make people throw up, but it is a little sickly and sentimental. But it was beautifully drawn by these twins who went all around Suffolk mm-hmm. and, and drew the houses and yes. the characters and yes. Cruella and Primrose Hill, which is where the dogs set off from. The book... 101 Dalmatians, was written when she was 60, I believe. So she was back in England at the time. 1956, And published in 1956. And then the rights were bought by Disney. And in fact, you know, even if you didn't like the film and the subsequent film with Glenn Close as Cruella de Vil, which I thought was wonderful, you could argue that the (laughs) film brought Dodie enormous success. Kudos, yes. I mean, kudos, exactly. Her friend Charlie Brackett, who was uh, the sidekick of Billy Wilder, showed the book to Disney, knew he wouldn't read it, just told him about one scene, and made Disney buy it. And then Disney came over and saw the cottage and said, wow, he was amazed by this uh, thing. Anyway, and the animation is brilliant. And may I say now that uh, one of the reasons we eventually wrested from Disney the rights for I Capture the Castle was that they said, well, you can have I Capture the Castle, but we want the rights to make an, a human version of uh, 100 Dalmatians. Which well, is we, how Glenn Close yes. and all the other but, beloved characters uh, we came thought to this, be This is impossible. You can't, have, you, you can't have 101 Dalmatians you, and, and, and uh, real people in this film. You'll never be able to make it. Next year, I was on Hampstead Heath walking my Dalmatian and there was the film set there was false snow covering the landscape and these all these Dalmatians gathered there 
And I, <laughs> I could not believe it. They're doing it. They are making this film. And it was excellent, wasn't it? Yeah, really. <laughs> you didn't only start to write a biography mm. of Dodie mm. Smith because you loved Dalmatians mm. and because you knew Julian Barnes, mm. who's a literary executor. Mm. How, why did you write this biography? I was immediately enthralled by the subject because I actually wanted to interview her once. And I, unfortunately, I then just had a, a fourth baby. Actually, she would, it would have been a nightmare because I, she, all interviewers came out to see her at Finching Field in the cottage and I wouldn't have pleased her because I would probably have had a baby with me. Ugh. Anyway, I was interested in Dodie Smith and I had read Look Back with Mixed Feelings, which was one of her memoirs. I mean, all, all her biographies have this title, Look Back yes. in With Love. Look Back with Love, with mm. Mixed Feelings, with Gratitude. So you loved her writing? Oh, yes, and I loved the, the idea of her character. Did you actually like her? <laughs> well, I liked her because one is grateful to a, a writer who keeps a record of absolutely everything <laughs> and all the letters. There was so much material and it was so good. It was just wonderful, wonderful fun to write. I must say, I think I would have found her incredibly annoying. Um, <laughs> Very egocentric. Gail. Oh, yes. Yes. What about you, Hazel? How did you How did you feel she came over and reading of I Captured the Castle? Challenging. Challenging is a good um, word <laughs> as a person. But I was, I was rather sad at the end because. You know, I suppose it does happen, but friendships dwindled, didn't they? Oh, and, yes. And she got very jealous of Gwen Franklin. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. She was a little besom as yeah, well as everything she was. Else. But I, I would love to have seen her because obviously her actual clothes were so completely fantastic. Yes. For a yeah. very short woman yes. with a very odd figure, apparently, she did seem to love clothes she very did. much indeed. Yes, absolutely adored And them, for an she? animal lover, she wore animal furs too. Yes, there were yes. many contradictions to well, yeah, Dodie Smith. Also, yes. having, having read 101 Dalmatians in the, the original version, I then discovered on the bookshelves Starlight Barking, which is the sequel, and I read it uh, in a puffin edition on the train coming up from Devon. In that, Cruella has obviously, she'd left England at the end of 101 Dalmatians, but she reappears, and she's now wearing and making plastic coats, which I thought was the most extraordinary. You know, she's, mm. she'd given up her furs and obviously failed to run a puppy farm and, and, and skin the puppies. So she's, yeah, she's now making plastic coats. So we should all read the sequel to I, I, 101 <clears throat> Dalmatians. I have to say that I found it just too fanciful. Basically the premise is that yeah. only dogs wake up one morning. Everybody else is asleep. asleep. And the dogs don't have to be, they don't have to eat, they don't feel hungry. Doors open for them if they want to go through them. And they can think themselves into motion. It's called swooshing, so they can swoosh wherever they choose to go. And it turns out that Pongo's youngest puppy, Cadpig, who appears in 101 Dalmatians, has become the, the owner of the Prime Minister and is living at 10 Downing Street. And mm. the dog star Sirius is involved. It all gets a bit metaphysical and, and a bit... A bit unconvincing to be perfectly honest so I mean most sequels are never as good as the original are they for those who are passionate about Jodie perhaps you might have have fun reading it but I I would go back to 101 now I mean you did say Mm. um, you wrote Valerie in your biography 
that she wanted to explore what native flair she had. I wanted to find out what enabled her to strike gold three times in three different genres and in three different decades. So the three you're referring to are Dear Octopus, the play, mm-hmm. I Catch the Castle, mm-hmm. the novel, and 101 Dalmatians, yes. which is for children and a novel as well. Mm. So these three golden products mm-hmm. of her writing, is this what constitutes the masterpiece of Dodie Smith? Yes, I think so. That's a nice short answer. I'm going to ask Hazel and Gail the same thing. Is it three, the I novel? Think, well, you know, we do read a lot of memoirs here because we reissue them. And, you know, it's, it's so exceptional when you find one that's got this just very totally convincing voice, you know, which, which I think Look Back With Love does have, doesn't it? So that you sort of lose yourself totally in the memoir of this person. And I just found that with Dodie, I, I just so loved it. Um, so, so I think that... Gail, what about you? Well, I, I would agree with Hazel. I think good writing about childhood is, is rare. And Dodie was, I mean, she absolutely encapsulated her childhood. And because she obviously loved it so much, that comes through in the memoir. And as Hazel says, it transports you back to Manchester before the First World War. And this whole world of outings and amateur dramatics. So there's a wonderful scene in it when they they decide to learn to swim and they go to the municipal baths. (laughs) This is the, the sisters and the mother. And... One of them is a determined smoker and, and insists on smoking her gold flake even while she's trying to, to learn to swim. And they cause so much mayhem in the pool that everybody else gets out and leaves them to it. And they have a, a glorious time. I mean, it, you know, how could you not love that? Slightly Foxed is a small independent publishing house in Hoxton, East London. It was founded in 2004 by two editors, Gail Perkis and Hazel Wood, as a labour of literary love. Slightly Foxed publishes a quarterly magazine which appeals to passionate readers everywhere, readers who enjoy engaging with a wide range of excellent writing, past and present, fiction and non-fiction. Slightly Foxed champions the lost, lesser-known or forgotten literary gems and celebrates the offbeat and unusual. Its contributors are also an eclectic bunch. Some are well-known novelists, distinguished journalists or academics. Others come from very different walks of life. Slightly Foxed also regularly reissues out-of-print books that deserve new audiences. The magazine has a global readership and is always happy to welcome more readers. It's posted out four times a year to over 60 countries. You can take out an annual subscription at a very reasonable rate, and this also gives you free access to all the back issues and the whole digital archive. That's over 1,200 articles. If you'd like to subscribe, do visit our website, foxedquarterly.com, or if you'd prefer to talk to a human being, then phone the London office. Contact details are on the website. Today, the Slightly Foxed family comprises magazines, books, newsletters, the annual Reader's Day and this podcast. We'd love you to join the Slightly Foxed family. (laughs) Much as it pains me to wrap up the discussion about Dodie Smith, we do need to. And I think this does bring us very well to the book recommendations, which all Slightly Foxed listeners 
love and respect. Now, I am obviously going to recommend Dodie Smith, anything by Dodie Smith and Valerie Grobe's biography of her, Dear Dodie. Valerie, what about you? I'm not going to recommend any of her novels, but of all the five volumes of autobiography, I think Look Back with Love is probably the best. You absolutely live that life with that little Dodie Smith, the adored little Dodie Smith, dancing and performing little Dodie Smith at Kingston House. She is writing about herself as a young girl Mm. in this autobiography at about the age of 70. Yes, I know. Which is... Again, another extraordinary element of Dodie's writing style and her inner life. Her memory and her conviction that it was simply fascinating to her. And it is to all of us as well. Absolutely. She was a genius. It goes without saying, I think we all agree. Hazel Mm. and Gail, I'd like to hear your book recommendations for Slightly Fox listeners. Hazel. Yes, well, I would like to recommend the newish biography of John Donne by Catherine Randell. It's called Super Infinite, and it was the joint winner of the Slightly Foxed Best First Biography Award. And I'm sorry to say that, you know, I I opened it as a fairly ignorant person. You know, a few of the poems had kind of stayed with me. And I think it can be sort of read at many different levels, just as a story, as it were. But I think if you know the poetry well, you probably get a lot more out of it than I did. But what I did like was that, to me, it sort of opened up that whole period of the late 16th and early 17th centuries and how utterly terrifying it was to be a Catholic. I know that Dunn's mother was the niece, I think, of Thomas More, And I believe it was said she carried his pickled head around with her some sort of... Memento. I mean, anyway, but, you know, it was terrifying, and you had to be so just incredibly careful. His younger brother died in prison for harbouring a Catholic priest. So all that, and also how precarious life was, really. You know, if you came from a a sort of... Well, he was well-connected, but not a terribly well-off family. You, You just had to have patrons, and... You know, amazing amount of sucking up had to be done. I didn't realise quite how much, you know, and the poems that he wrote to numerous patronesses, really. And it was also a touching picture, I think, of, of his devotion to his wife and so on. It was just seemed to me to be a, f- a very beautifully written, many-layered book, which I think I might read again, actually. It takes a great writer like Catherine Rundell to bring John Donne to life. Uh, I mean, a lot of us read John Donne at school, know a few poems, but... um, Well, he seemed like a sort of bit of a monolith to me, you know, a sort of brick wall almost. But it it did light him up. And also his, you know, strange later life when he became Dean of St Paul's and gave Mm. sermons for hours and hours in the open air to 6,000 people. You know, it was all incredibly vivid to me. There we are. Well, thank you very, very, thank you very much for that. It's a great recommendation. Um, Gail Perkis, your book recommendation for this. I'm I'm going to recommend a historical novel, and I have a a contributor to thank for this. We've got a lovely article uh, which will appear sometime this year on a writer called Julian Rathbone, and in particular on a book called Kings of Albion, which is set in the Wars of the Roses. And so this piece came in, and, and we edited it, and I thought oh, I'd quite like to read more of him. 
So I went down to the, where we keep the historical novels in the house, and lo and behold, I had got a Julian Rathbone novel, not that one, but one called The Last English King, which was set in 1066 and the years leading up to 1066. And it's an account of a man called Walt, who is one of King Harold's bodyguards. And he's terribly wounded at the Battle of Hastings. And unlike the rest of the household, and indeed Harold, he does manage to escape. And he flees to Europe. He's lost an arm in the battle. And he's traumatised. You know, the Normans have invaded. The world that he knew has, has disappeared. And he meets up with a man called Quint, who's a one of those permanent travellers. He's always on the move. He's been to Compostela. He's heading for Jerusalem. And they, they travel in company. And gradually the story of what happened to Walt unfolds. And you get these wonderful flashbacks of going back to about 1065. Edward the Confessor is dying. Has he named an heir? Who is going to inherit the throne? And it, it takes you into the Saxon world in a wonderful way. And you you know perfectly well what's going to happen in the, at the very end, but it, it, it's got narrative drive to really keep you gripped. So anybody who likes historical novels and a fast-paced story, I'd really recommend it. And we'll put this in the show notes, but there is a glorious photo of him. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very yes. Um, we've, we've just opened the book for all of you tuning we, we, in at this moment. You must, you must yeah. look on the, uh, on the he, website he to see this. He also has these sort of anachronistic asides that recur. So William the Conqueror is, is described as a mad bastard. And there are little phrases and references which bring it right into the, the late 20th century. And, and that's, it's fun, you know. So Fantastic okay. recommendations, as, as always. So that's it from Slightly Foxed for this episode, dedicated to the life and work of Dodie Smith. Thank you so much to Valerie Grove for joining us here at Foxed. HQ in Hoxton Square and thank you for Gail and Hazel as well for making me feel so welcome my first uh, podcast thank you to both of you thank you very much we'll be back in three months time on April the 15th when we track down more compelling storytellers and riveting tales of the unexpected you'll find all the books and authors we've discussed today in the program show notes easily accessed on your podcast app or the Foxed website foxedquarterly.com where you can also subscribe to our quarterly print magazine print or podcast all of us at slightly foxed are united in our love of books and of great authors in reading and rediscovering lost and forgotten literary gems Mm. thank you so much for joining us and it's been a pleasure for me and i'm going to quote the words of dodie smith to end this show she wrote in i capture the castle And this is Cassandra saying, when I read a book, I put in all the imagination I can so that it's almost like writing the book as well as reading it, or rather it's like living it. It makes reading so much more exciting. Mm. I think that's a good way to end this show. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Rosie. Good one.